This morning we're going to talk about where was Jesus for the three days between the cross and his resurrection. Would you please turn to Matthew 27? Matthew 27, we're going to read from verse 45 to 50. If you're able to, I ask you to stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. We do this because this is Holy Scripture. Matthew 27, verse 45 to 50. Here now is the word of the Lord. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, some of those standing there heard this. They said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Please be seated. Well, this morning we are going to address one of those topics that people often ask about. And frankly, I haven't really addressed it at all on a Sunday morning message since Terry and I joined you. Would you believe we're coming up on one year? Not quite there yet. This morning, our topic, where did Jesus go during the time between his death and his resurrection? Now, perhaps what we'll be doing today is not so much to have an absolute answer because the Bible is not eminently clear on this, but it does give us some clues, and so we're going to try to define what's included in a right answer and, honestly, what should not be a part of a right and a correct answer. So we're going to set the parameters in that sense, the boundaries based on what Scripture tells us. And because of that, this message is going to feel like something of a collection of rabbit trails. But I'm going to try to make them come back together at the end. So fasten your seatbelts and hang on. Let us begin. Now a key passage in this discussion of where Jesus was in his time between his death and his resurrection is 1 Peter 3, verse 18 to 20. Here's what it says. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now, the meaning of the phrases imprisoned spirits and also the meaning of those who were disobedient in the days of Noah, those two phrases, there's some honest different opinions. Even different Bible teachers have explained them in different ways. But traditionally, the understanding includes the idea that between his death and resurrection, Christ announced his victory over death to people from the Old Testament era who had died. And when they died, they went to a place of torment or to a place of comfort. And the place of comfort is referred to as paradise. Um, do you remember what Jesus said to the thief on the cross? He said to the thief on the cross, Today, or perhaps more accurately in a translation, This day shalt thou be with me in paradise. So the Old Testament taught us that all who departed from this life went to a place of conscious existence. They weren't sleeping. The Hebrew term for this place was Sheol, 
It could be translated as the realm of the dead. The Greek term for this is actually Hades. And in Luke 16, there's a famous story of Lazarus and the rich man, and it speaks of how Hades was divided into two realms, and it was a temporary place of waiting for final judgment. The two realms were the place of comfort where Lazarus was, sometimes called Abraham's side, and there was a place of torment, which is where the rich man was sent. Lazarus' place of comfort is called paradise. The place of torment in Greek is called Gehenna. And between paradise and Gehenna, these two regions of Hades, there was what Luke 16, 26 describes as a great gulf fixed. And the fact that no person could cross this great chasm indicates that after death, a person cannot change their eternal destination. Thus, when an unbeliever died, he or she followed the rich man to the torment side of Hades, and they're still awaiting final judgment there before the great white throne, at which time they will hear the dreaded words, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity, I never knew you. And they will be cast at that time into the lake of fire for all eternity. That's Revelation 20. On the other hand, when a believer died, they're present with the Lord in paradise. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6-9 speaks of this. Well-known passage, it says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Many of you know that. A believer who died would join those who have been enjoying paradise for many years. And they're still there, awaiting the day when Christ returns, and that's when they receive their glorified, resurrected bodies. Now, this is described by a theological concept that's often worded as the following. They phrase it as already and not yet. You might say, what's that supposed to mean? Well, it's an example of how we are saved by faith, and yet we're still sinners here in this life. After we die, we're in the conscious, joyous presence of the Lord, and yet we're still waiting for his return and our eternal resurrected body. So the point of this is that all people are facing a resurrection, either to eternal life in the Lord's presence or a resurrection to eternal torment and separation from God. And by the way, I do plan to bring a message later this summer about the reality of hell. I'm sure you'll be looking forward to that one. Don't worry, it's not going to be a 24-week series, but it does need to be addressed. So you might say, well, Jim, this is all very interesting background information. What does this have to do with where Jesus went? for those three days. Well, I'm getting there, so stay with me. One of the problems that we have is the English term, the English term hell is just too broad. The Greek can help us to understand the, the full meaning. Hades is not the hell that we tend to think of. Hades is temporary. It has those two sides, paradise and torment. The lake of fire after the final judgment is probably the hell that we think of. Eternal, conscious torment and separation from God. This is one of the reasons why English only, in terms of Bible study, can be very problematic. Now, in helping us to answer this question, where was Jesus for those three days, let's consider a passage from 2 Peter 2.4. 2 Peter 2.4, and I'm going to quote the classic translations for a specific reason. Here's the passage. 
For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. The English word hell, as used in the King James Version in 2 Peter 2.4, is really not specific enough. In the original passage, in the original Greek, the term used was Tartaru, not Hades. Tartaru is a Greek term for the abode of the wicked dead. Not just the dead, but the wicked dead. It roughly aligns with the Hebrew concept of Gehenna. This is the place where the rich man in Luke 16 went to. The torments of Hades awaiting final judgment. It's one of the reasons why this particular passage in classic translations really was not optimal because they should have transliterated the term and said Hades. Instead, they made something of an editorial judgment and said hell. Some passages in scripture like this one are a little unclear in their meaning. We, are, we can know certain things, though, from the context of the rest of scripture. One of the core understanding principles of applying these writings is the following phrase. Scripture interprets scripture, sometimes also called context matters. But throughout scripture, we can have great confidence of three big things, three main points. One, God speaks. We might puzzle over what, where, and how, but we can see God's communicating through his word. But second, we can see God triumphs. Christ was victorious. He indicates his power and his control, his ongoing presence over all creation. As I said in our prayer time, he is still on his throne. But also, God saves. God himself, through his Holy Spirit, moves to rescue those who answer the call to come to a saving faith. So we're going to go back now to 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also hath suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened in the spirit, is one of the old translations. Quickened refers to being made alive. To being made alive. Jesus' human body died on the cross, but his spirit remained alive. In this sense, the question we're really asking today is, where was Jesus' spirit during those three days. We know where his body was. Where was his spirit? That's really the question that we're asking today. So if we look just one verse after that, 1 Peter 3.19, the classic translations say that he preached unto the spirits in prison. The Greek word that Peter used in that passage, caruso, it means he made proclamation. Thus, according to 1 Peter 3.19, sometime during that time between his death and his resurrection, he made a special proclamation to these imprisoned spirits. So it's a fair question to ask, who were they? Who were these folks? Well, to give us some context, very often look around the verses that you're reading. Look before and after to give you context. In this case, let's look one verse later. Verse 20. It says, those who disobeyed God long ago when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. That's from the, the New Living Translation. You see, Noah and his family believed God, and as a result, they were justified by faith, just as you and I are justified by faith. This is probably what Peter's speaking of when he's referring to Noah and his family. And so thus, one of the things Jesus did during those three days was he went to declare his victory over death to those who had the chance to repent before the great flood, but did not. 
Ever since that day, they have been in the torment section of Hades, awaiting final judgment for all the years since then. But let's address a common misunderstanding on today's question of where Jesus went for that time between his death, his physical death and his physical resurrection. It's something of an elephant in the room, and it's found its way into common thinking, but I don't think there's a biblical justification for it. It's probably caused because English is not as specific as the original languages. Here's the elephant in the room. Did Jesus go to hell for those three days? Well, Acts 2, verse 31 to 32 describes this, and I'm going to read from the classic translation, again, for a specific reason. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. The classic translation uses the word hell in Acts 2.31. In the Greek, the original word is Hades, which broadly speaking, refers to the realm of the dead, but it's not really the hell that we tend to think of. It is the temporary place, not the permanent place. The NIV translation, by the way, uses the wording, the realm of the dead. The torment in Hades is not the lake of fire that is eternal. Revelation 20, verse 11 to 15, makes a clear distinction between this. It is important we understand this because it's an important part of understanding Jesus' activities for those three days. Thus, he gave up his spirit to God the Father, but at some time between his death and his resurrection, Jesus also visited and went to a place where he delivered a message to some imprisoned spirits. So you say, well, yes, but who are they? Well, another theory comes from Jude 1.6 where it says, And the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged, God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness waiting for the great day of judgment. These imprisoned spirits may very well have been the fallen angels that followed Lucifer in the first fall into sin many years earlier. And those spirits were imprisoned because they were involved in that grievous uprising. Now, Peter doesn't say what Jesus proclaimed to them. It was probably a declaration of his victory over Satan and of his victory over death. But somehow, somehow over the years, there's still this misperception that Jesus, quote, went to hell for three days. And it may come from the Apostles' Creed. Because in the original Roman Catholic version, the Apostles' Creed reads as follows. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. So far, we would have no problem with that. But then the next line says, he descended into hell. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Most Protestant versions of the Apostles' Creed remove that line that says he descended into hell among other things, because it implies additional cleansing was needed even for Jesus. And it implies that even after his death on the cross, the payment was still not full and complete. For this reason, we should not believe that Jesus spent three days in hell. I don't see the Holy Scriptures supporting the Roman Catholic concept of purgatory. The Apostles' Creed is based on Scripture, but it is not 
scripture. That's a very important distinction. So what does the Bible really tell us about this? What does it really say? Well, I'm going to quote from Ephesians 4, and it actually is quoting from Psalm 68, 18. In Ephesians 4, 8, Paul writes the following. When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. It's a somewhat unusual passage, but another way to translate that held captivity captive phrase would be to say he led a crowd of captives. Now, to give us more clarity, because that still was a little nebulous, isn't it? I'm actually going to refer to something, and those of you who are my age or older will remember the Living Bible back in the 1970s. Terry has a copy of one of the versions of it called The Way from the early 70s. It's got a young woman with a hippy-dippy top on and a hairband around her head on the cover. I remember that. And it was perhaps the very first true paraphrase edition this can sometimes be helpful when we're facing some very awkward wording in not only the older, but even the modern translations. Here's the way the old living Bible words it. It says the following. The psalmist tells us about this, for he says that when Christ returned triumphantly to heaven after his resurrection and victory over Satan, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also had descended into the lower regions, the earth? which strongly suggests the Hades, the realm of the dead, where he went and ministered to people in paradise, as well as ministered to people in that Tartaru, or the torment side. The general understanding is in paradise, Jesus ministered to Abraham and David and Joshua and Daniel and the beggar Lazarus and the thief on the cross, everybody else who had been justified by faith but eventually died. He brought encouragement to them, in paradise, that wonderful side of Hades, well, they were awaiting his return and awaiting the day that they would receive their resurrected, glorified bodies. And it strongly also suggests that he went and proclaimed his victory over death and over Satan in the other side of Hades. Not hell, but Hades. So what's the bottom line here? Well, this is one of those questions in which the Bible doesn't really give us a complete answer. It gives us some clues. But from what we can tell, we can say that he did at least two things. He comforted the departed Old Testament saints who were in paradise waiting their future bodily resurrection. And he proclaimed his victory over death to fallen angels and unrepentant human sinners who were kept in Gehenna, Hebrew term, Tartaru, Greek term, the abode of the wicked dead. And they are still there awaiting final judgment. But what else can we know with some certainty? Well, I would suggest that we can know that Jesus was also confirming something else. That once we die, when we take our last breath, there isn't a final opportunity after that for salvation. After our physical death, Hebrews 9.27 tells us that it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. Thus, once we die, there are no more opportunities for salvation. Our destiny, our eternal destiny at that point, is fixed. And so in the end, this brings us back to face two realities. Two realities, and we'll use the broader English terms here. The two realities that we refer to is heaven and hell. Those are two final eternal destinations. 
And for this reason, this morning I ask you a question. If you have not repented of your sin, recognizing that you're a sinner, accepting Jesus as your Savior, if you've never done that, that should be priority one. And after the service, privately, one of our elders or myself would love to meet with you and talk about that and show you in Scripture where you can do that and you can understand what that means. But if you are somebody who has done so, you've received him as your Savior, and you are a saved by grace, born again, follower of Jesus Christ, I ask all of us, what are you doing to share the good news of the gospel with those who have yet to join you as a believer? You may be familiar with the Great Commission right at the end of the book of Matthew. Teach all nations, meaning all people, about their need to receive him as their Savior. Because remember, every one of us here, everyone listening to the recording of my voice, watching the live stream, or watching the video of this years into the future, every one of us, without God's grace, we would all be bound for the lake of fire one day. But because of his grace, because of his fully atoning death on the cross, because of the blood that was shed as the perfect Lamb of God, because of the calling of the Holy Spirit, and because we have answered that call, because of that, instead of eternity in the lake of fire, we're bound for eternity in the Lord's presence, eventually on the new earth in the new Jerusalem. So regardless of the question of where Jesus was for those three days, the question for us today should actually be, what are we doing to help prevent someone that we know and love from going to the place of eternal torment and separation from God, the place which lasts forever and ever and has no hope of ever coming to an end? That is the question for us today. We can debate with a sense of wonder about what Jesus did for those three days. We can even debate about whether or not it was three days. You're familiar with the debate about whether it's three days and three nights, which Jesus compared it to as Jonah would be in the belly of the great fish, so shall the Son of Man be in the bowels of the earth for three days and three nights, or the passages were refers to on the third day he rose again. People can have that discussion, but that isn't anywhere near as important as this last question. Just like the question isn't so much do we know for sure which day it was that he died? The question is, do we know for sure that he really rose? Because if Christ didn't really rise, then you and I have no hope and we're still dead in our sins. So let's focus not on the academic question, but on the real one. What are we doing to minister to and to encourage people we know and love who have yet to accept Christ as their savior? What are we doing to share the good news with them so they don't face the dark side of Hades and then after the final judgment, the eternal separation and torment from God. I'll close with one final thought. One of my seminary profs, Mike Whitmer, always had a great answer for students who would try to ask trick questions. I was never one of those. Those were the younger ones than me. I just sort of watched and thought to myself, okay, Let's see if we can put someone up to this one. Well, one day they asked him, they said, are the fires in hell symbolic or are they real? And Dr. Whitmer's answer was, let's not find out. 
But that's the point to everybody that we know and love who aren't believers. Let's do everything we can so they don't have to find out. So, with that in mind, will you please pray with me?